A quick programming note before we get into our fourth and final episode. And thank you, by the way, for sticking with us and listening through. I hope you've gotten value and food for thought out of these conversations. As I've noted at the top of each episode, these conversations took place in late 2019, uh, before the COVID-19 pandemic, before the killing of George Floyd. And so if you notice that there aren't reference to these important contexts of our day, that is why. So thank you again, and please enjoy this fourth and final episode of the show. Welcome to episode four of Parenting in a New Context, Strategies for Practitioners Supporting Refugee and Immigrant Caregivers. It's a podcast series made by and for mental health practitioners about serving refugee and immigrant families. And so far, we've discussed the tenets of culturally responsive care and the ways both culture and trauma can influence parenting. Today, we're going to talk more specifically about how parenting interventions can be adapted to be more culturally responsive. I'm Trevor Bourne with the Center for Resilient Families at the University of Minnesota, and I'm really pleased to be joined today by my colleague, Abigail Gewertz, director of the center, and Ruben Parra-Cardona, a researcher and professor at the University of Texas, Austin. Thank you both for joining me today. Thank you, Trevor. Thank you. Now, you've both worked to adapt parenting interventions to specific cultural groups. Could you briefly talk about an intervention you've adapted? Yes, our intervention is um, a cultural adapted version of Generation PMTO. The original adaptation was carried out by Melanie Domenech and her team at Utah State University and stands as CAPAS, which means Creando con Amor, Promoviendo Armonía y Superación, Raising Kids with Love, Promoting uh, Self-Improvement. And our version of that, uh, we built on that original work, is how is it that we overly address issues of contextual oppression, discrimination, and adversity into a parenting intervention. So that has been our contribution. How do we add that layer to an already very good adapted parenting intervention? Thank you. Abby? Our program is called ADAPT, after deployment adaptive parenting tools. And you might not think about the adaptation of an intervention for military families as a cultural adaptation. But as you'll hear, there are some strong similarities. Our program was, was also adapted from Generation PMTO, specifically for families affected by trauma and families with a parent who has deployed to war are often affected by the trauma that their service member parent has been exposed to in most recent case in Iraq and Afghanistan. And uh, children in those families also have to deal with the great anxiety related to being separated from a parent for long periods of time sometimes. So our cultural adaptation in ADAPT was really twofold. One, could we help parents be their children's best teachers, not only in terms of promoting good behavior, appropriate behavior, but also in terms of regulating and managing big emotions? And the second part of that, so essentially a trauma-informed adaptation of PMTO, the second part is, can we develop a program that's really congruent with the military culture? Why is it important to adapt an intervention? Why not just use the out-of-the-box version that's already been tested and proven out? 
That, that, that's an excellent question because um, it has many layers. That answer has many layers. The first one is like we really need to ask ourselves as researchers, as uh, implementation in science, what is our contribution and what is our role? Because science can be oppressive. Science can perpetuate the status quo. I'm an immigrant myself, and I have seen the most beautiful examples of how you can advance in U.S. society, but also the most terrible examples of oppression. So our interventions can be oppressive if they were developed with a population that does not resemble the population when you want to implement. So Generation PMTO was uh, originally developed uh, with Euro-Americans in uh, Eugene, with a population that was exposed to really serious contextual factors. But it was also a population that our majority were U U.S. citizens, access to services. Uh, we work with uh, mixed immigration status families. Uh, most of them uh, don't have documentation status, so they don't have rights and privilege that many families have here. So if you don't adapt, it can be not only alienating, but also oppressive. So starting from that point. Also, it's uh, the role of culture is very important because if you offer something that people are not going to identify with, they are not going to find a meaning to their efforts, it's just not going to resonate with them. Our interventions are voluntarily, so people choose to be there. And if we don't adapt, we run the risk that we're offering a parenting program that doesn't bring meaning to them. So, for example, if you uh, overlook the importance of cultural values like respect or like familismo, and you don't embed intervention in those values as you're giving the intervention, parents won't resonate. But at the same time, if you are giving examples of parenting situations that you know are more middle class with families that have layers of privilege and these families are on a daily survival basis, if you don't adapt, it's just not going to resonate. Parents will tell you that doesn't make sense. That may be good in a different universe, but not in ours. And it's our responsibility because these families are exposed to so much adversity that they are at high risk for child maltreatment because of the oppression they experience. So it's a multi-layer answer, um, and it's a social justice issue, but also cultural relevance issue. And when you're looking at an intervention, how are you determining which aspects of it need to be tailored versus what is more universal and applies across cultures? That's a great question, Trevor. The first thing to do is to try and figure out what are core elements of the intervention that represent principles that are likely to be universal? And so I'll give you the example of teaching children through encouragement. It is pretty universal that children, and all of us for that matter, learn more effectively if we are encouraged rather than punished. That's not to say that punishment doesn't have an important place in deterring kids from negative behaviors. But as we say, we want to see a five to one ratio where you can teach children in positive ways through encouragement many more times so that it can be more powerful than deterring them through punishment. Problem solving is another example. Um, you want most people around the world, if not everybody, wants to teach their children problem-solving skills that will help them be healthy, independent adults. But how that teaching looks, and as Ruben mentioned, the kinds of scenarios that you use and examples that you use to illustrate and help parents 
figure out how that skill is best conveyed in their family, in their culture, in their context is absolutely key. Because if what you are providing is not relevant, doesn't speak to families, then you, you will get nowhere. Some things I hear when you've discussed this is that an adaptation needs to be relevant and acceptable. Can you speak to those two terms and what they mean in the context of your work? Uh, yes, that's a key question and a key issue. Acceptable basically refers to uh, a standard that has to be met, right? So, for example, if you are going to offer a, an intervention in our case adapted for Latino immigrants, you need to make uh, sure that the language resonates with the um, Spanish language, that the metaphors are acceptable, that re they resonate with uh, metaphors that are very important in the Latinx culture. Um, however, there's a risk just to stay at the good enough level of what is the minimum standard, right? That, that's that's a non-brainer, non-negotiable issue that you develop culturally uh, responsive manuals and materials. What is relevant is where it becomes a challenge. Because if I deliver a parenting intervention and we've learned these things to the families we work with, only by addressing parenting issues, we were going to have some level of impact. But we need to go a step further because when you're implementing discipline, in the back of your mind is uh, experiences of discrimination you experienced that day, is the social isolation that you're experiencing as an immigrant, is the impossibility to go to and see your family because you cannot travel. That's where relevance comes in. And relevance comes in driven by the families we serve and the populations we serve. And the moment we stop providing the means for families and communities to continue to teach us what is relevant, that's where interventions can be more oppressive or alienating. We may offer some level of acceptable help, yeah, like the parenting practice, but it may be curtailed because when that family goes to the day-to-day -day parenting situations, we haven't addressed them to integrate the adversity they experience while they enhancing their parenting practices. I want to talk about trauma for a moment because you've both adapted interventions that deal with the context of trauma. How does that context of trauma specifically factor into how you adapt an intervention? Well, trauma at its core, the experience of something life-threatening or incredibly dangerous, whether it is being held up at knife point as you're trying to cross the border or uh, seeing your buddies killed, uh, secondary to the explosion of an improvised explosive device in Afghanistan, ultimately makes us feel powerless and overwhelms our emotional capacity. What we know about trauma, regardless of its origin, is that it continues in a way to torture us by uh, reminders of the traumatic situation. So people who suffer, who are not able to completely recover from their traumatic experiences may be reminded of them by a sight, a sound, a smell, even a taste. And that reminder then completely overwhelms their emotions and it overwhelms their ability to cope. And I'll give you a quick example. One of our earliest facilitators in our ADAPT program was the wife of a senior leader, military leader, who had deployed to Afghanistan three times. And after his second deployment, he came home. And for, the, for a few weeks, he wasn't 
working and he was at home when the kids came home from school in the afternoon. They had three kids of school age and somehow, and they came off the bus at 3.25 and somehow at 3.30 every afternoon, dad would explode and he would throw things at the kids and he would yell and it was a very difficult transition. Well, it took mum a little bit of sleuthing to figure out that it was the noise of the children opening and shutting the doors and throwing their backpacks on the floor, the thuds that reminded him of the traumatic explosions that he had experienced in Afghanistan, seeing his buddies killed and maimed, that completely overwhelmed him, rendering him unable to parent in that moment. So... Once they figured that out, they were able to step back and in the near term, organize for him not to be at home right when they came home, to organize the kids to understand that those big noises really were difficult for dad. And ultimately, those kinds of tools help them as a family to be able to get along better. Many families talk about treading on eggshells with a traumatized parent. And so the first step, and this is really key to a trauma-informed parenting program, is to be able to help parents be aware of, identify and respond to their own difficult emotions so that they can be their kids' best teachers. And what are the first steps someone can take if they're thinking of adapting an intervention for a specific cultural group? Um, cultural adaptation is about bringing together two worlds, the world of cultural relevance, cultural experiences, but also the world of science that has taught us what are the principles of interventions that we know promote change. Um, on the side of cultural relevance, the first step is to know your positionality. What do I mean by that? Is you as a researcher, you as an implementer, how are you seen by the target population? One of my major mistakes when I started this work with Latino immigrants was that by thinking that I was Mexican-born, fluent in Spanish, I was going to be trusted. But I never looked at the layers of privilege I had by being a faculty in a mostly white university. And that that was the way I was seen by parents. And I was not trusted. They were at certain very guarded about me. But I was completely overlooking that. So the first is you as an adapter, what is your positionality and how are you seen and how are you being experienced? Uh, the second step is to what extent are you honoring the cultural values, the traditions of the, of the population you want to work with, but also to what extent are you fully aware of what experiences have been most influential in that people. Uh, for example, in the case of Latinx immigrants, we see that they come here to fulfill a dream, but oftentimes they are labeled, they are indicated as breaking the law when everything they want is to contribute a new life for their families and to contribute to this country. On the other side of the adaptation then comes, how is it that we expose families to these interventions in a way that doesn't dilute the principles that they know work well? And there's a tension there. And um, I would say that cultural adaptation is a slow process because then you need to start developing small pilot feasibility studies to start integrating all these pieces of the puzzle. 
But what carries you through that moment and that process is the wisdom of parents because you communicate with your colleagues who develop original intervention and it's like, okay, what is it that I cannot miss? What is it that I need to deliver? But then you present that to families and you say, I really connected with this. I struggle with this. So it's a bi-directional process. So it's not giving up on any of those processes, but integrating in a permanent, fluid process of conversations in which you have these challenging conversations. Well, thank you so much, Abby and Ruben, for your time and for highlighting the way these ideas around cultural responsiveness apply to evidence-based interventions. I really think it was a fitting way to wrap up our series. And thank you to everyone who joined us for this series. I hope it was an engaging, informative, and inspiring way to spend your listening time and that it provides some both big ideas and practical steps you can take to be more effective in your work. If you found it helpful, please consider sharing it with other colleagues who may benefit from it. Once again, the series was a collaboration between the Refugee Trauma and Resilience Center at Boston Children's Hospital, the Center for Resilient Families at the University of Minnesota, and the National Child Traumatic Stress Network. Thank you for listening.